We are going to continue this morning in our study of Christ and the covenants of the Old Testament. And uh, Our hope is that we will see how all of the promises in the Bible find their fulfillment in Jesus. As Paul says, all the promises are yes and amen in him. Okay. So we've been looking this semester through the Old Testament. We've been looking at the promises of God through these covenants and how they find their fulfillment in Jesus. Uh, remember, a covenant is a bond initiated by God and sealed in blood. A covenant is a bond in blood initiated by God. Right? And so uh, this morning we're going to look at Christ and the covenant with Moses or the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, but to do that, we're going to have to fast forward about 400 years from where we left off before. So uh, we, we left off with the covenant with Abraham last time. And now 400 years later, we're going to get to this covenant with Moses. So what we're going to do is what I put up here is a diagram. And uh, if, you're, if you're interested in having diagrams, Presbyterians, we're not very good at diagrams. This is about the only one we got of the Old Testament here. So, you know, but if you want to refer to this later, you can draw this or you can take a picture of it and go back and look at it. But I'm going to use this to kind of illustrate kind of where we've been and, and where we're going to kind of catch everybody up to speed, right? When we looked at Genesis 1 and 2, we saw that God created man in his image to live in a relationship with him. He created him to be fruitful and multiply and flourish, and he, he made a covenant with Adam. And he said, Adam, you can have every tree of the garden, this wonderful paradise that I've created for you, but you cannot eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. We know that Adam and Eve ate from that tree, and the world at that point fell into sin and misery. And so you can see we have Adam there at the beginning, and it says covenant of creation. I like to call that the covenant of works, but that, that covenant of works extends to all of creation, that this idea of do this and live. But because we live in a fallen and sinful world, we can't keep that. So in Genesis 3.15, God made a promise. We call this the first gospel. He said, I'm going to send a seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent, and to free you from the sin and misery of this world. And so everything from there on out is, is an outworking of this covenant of redemption or this covenant of grace. And what God is doing through the Old Testament covenants is he's gradually revealing more and more about the new covenant that, that finds its fulfillment in Christ. So then we went to the covenant of Noah. The covenant of Noah is a covenant of preservation, it's a covenant of common grace. And what God was doing there in the flood was he was, uh, he was cutting creation back to the stump. Uh, the world had gotten so sinful and miserable that the, the only way to save it was to cut it back to the stump. Uh, so he cut it back to one man, Noah, and his family. And he made a promise. He said, I will never again flood the earth. And he began to repopulate the earth with Noah and his family. And then we moved on to the next covenant with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, a covenant of promise. And there God begins to redeem a people for himself. He makes amazing promises to Abraham. He says, I'm going to give you a great home. I'm going to great, make you a great family. I'm going to make you a great nation. And we spent three weeks looking at how, how God uh, made those great promises. And he sealed that covenant in blood. Remember, God walked through the pieces saying that he was going to be faithful to the covenant, even if Abraham was unfaithful. And then we saw that Abraham took the sign of circumcision on him, a sign that he was entering into this covenant with God. He believed in these covenant promises. 
When God made that covenant with Abraham, he prophesied. He said, your family will go to a nation that's not theirs. They're going to live in a land for 400 years, and then I'm going to rescue them and give them the promised land. So we fast forward 400 years, and what we find is that God kept his promises to Israel to make them a great nation. And you see that at the beginning of Exodus. If you look at Exodus 1, 1 through 7, we should have it up there. It says, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Let me fast forward a little bit. I forgot to mention this. Abraham fathered a son named Isaac. Isaac fathered a son named Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Okay? So now this is showing the lineage, the progression from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, there are the, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan and Naphtali. Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Notice the echoes here of Genesis 1. What did God tell Adam? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What is happening to Israel? They're being fruitful and multiplying, and they're filling the earth. They're becoming a great nation. But this was a problem, because Egypt didn't like that Israel was becoming great. And the king that knew Joseph died, and a new king came in and thought that the Israelites were going to take over. And so he was very harsh with them, and he judged them. But God saw their suffering, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham. We see that in Exodus 2, 23 through 25. It says, During those, day, those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God remembered his covenant. He remembered his action plan. He said, now it's time to put the action plan in place to rescue my people and to redeem them. So that's what he did through this man named Moses. He lifted up Moses, elevated him to a rescuer, and Moses went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go, and Pharaoh wouldn't do it. And so God sent these plagues to judge Egypt, and eventually Pharaoh let God's people go, and they left Egypt. They crossed the Jordan River, and now they come to Mount Sinai. Well, we're going to pick up the story where God now is going to advance his covenant a little bit more. He's going to reveal a little bit more about his covenant relationship with us. Okay? So that we pick up the story here, Exodus 19, verses 1 through 8. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They sat out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. All men are like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But not the word of our God. It stands forever. Let's listen to it. We're going to look at three things from this passage this morning. We're going to look at the essence, the benefits, and the fulfillment of the Mosaic Covenant. The essence, the benefits, and the fulfillment of the Mosaic Covenant. That'd be a little bit different than the, the uh, version you're outlined. That was uh, rough draft 1.0. This is rough draft number 7.2. Okay, <laughs> just make that note. Let's look at the essence first. On April 1st, 2006, I entered a marriage covenant with Sherry Johansson, where I would become her loving and faithful husband and she would become my loving and faithful wife. Yes, we got married on April Fool's Day. That's not a prank, but there have been several pranks since that date. Okay, But on that day, we made these general vows to each other. This is what we said. I said, I promise to be, we promise to be loving and faithful to each other in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live. Those were the general promises. And after that day, as we've been married now for 15 years, we have uh, figured out the specific ways in which we get to keep those promises to each other. Uh, I had to learn this the hard way uh, right after our honeymoon. Okay, we went on our honeymoon. We came back. It was a Sunday. I remember it clearly. We walked to the front door. We had no furniture. We just kind of looked at each other, and we we're like, well, what now? And so we did what, you know, you did before you had kids, I guess, and you were young. We ordered pizza, and we watched a movie. So we set up our camping chairs, and we started. We ordered pizza. We watched the movie. I can't remember the kind of pizza, but I remember the movie. Uh, we were watching the movie, and Sherry fell asleep during the movie. And so I did what we did in my family. When you fell asleep during a movie, I woke her up. I said, hey, you're, you're falling asleep. You're missing the movie. And she said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm, I'm waking you up. Don't you want to watch the movie? She said, no, never wake me up for a movie. She laid down the law. It's like the first commandment, thou shalt not wake up your wife during a movie. Okay, that was the specific way that I was to love her in this relationship, right? If you look at all of your relationships, right, as husband and wife, as parents and children, as siblings, uh, maybe even as citizens of the United States, as members of ethos, you have these general promises that you make to each other, but then you have ways in which you carry out those relationships, Ways in which you love each other and you serve each other. What God is doing here in the Mosaic Covenant is he is saying, this is how you're going to love me. I have saved you. I have brought you into a relationship with me. These are the specific ways that you're going to love me. He's defining this relationship. He's giving us the, the essence of the Mosaic Covenant is a law, but it's a law of love. Notice in verses 4 and 5, it says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. He is recounting all he just did in the Exodus. That is the great salvation paradigm for all the Old Testament. That is God's way of saying, I have saved you. I have rescued you. He wants the Israelites to know this is their salvation. 
God saved them already. He's already uh, made this covenant of Abraham. He's already brought them into a relationship with him. And now he is going to define the terms of that relationship. He's going to say, this is how you're going to love me. So what does he do? In verse 5, he says, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Right? So the law that he's about to give them in Exodus, Leviticus, in Numbers, they're wandering all around the forest because they're lost, because they broke the law. And then in Deuteronomy, the law there. All of that law is a way for God to explain, this is how you're going to relate to me. This is how I'm going to be your father and you're going to be my children. This is how I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. He gave the law after he had already saved them. So the law teaches us how to live in a loving relationship with him. Now, there are, you know, as you're studying the Old Testament, you're going to see there's, there's basically three types of laws in the Old Testament. Okay? The first one is the moral law. That's the Ten Commandments. And this generally teaches us how to do what? How to love God and love our neighbor. Jesus says that that's the summary of the law, right? Because you've got the Ten Commandments. Then you've got what we call the ceremonial law. And the ceremonial law is all those uh, gross, strange, bizarre laws that we don't really understand. The sacrifices, the ritual purity, the clean and unclean foods. That's all the ceremonial law. Okay? All of that part of the law was fulfilled in Jesus and abrogated in Jesus. That's why Christians don't keep those laws anymore. That's why we don't do sacrifices. You didn't walk in today with a goat and a pigeon and a ram, and I'm not going to cut it all open and look at the long lobe of the liver. I don't even know what that means, but I'm not going to do it because all that was fulfilled in Jesus. So that part of the law is fulfilled and abrogated. The third part of the law is the civil laws. So what God was doing is he was forming Israel into a nation state. So he gave them these laws so that they could be a civilized nation state and he was supposed to be their king and their ruler. Those laws are also abrogated. The the church is not a nation state, right? We do have God as our king through Jesus, right? But we're not a a geopolitical nation state anymore. We're a body of believers. And so we... we, uh, we don't keep those laws anymore. We don't follow those laws. Now, there may be some principles and some things that we can draw out from. The ceremonial law especially points us to the sacrifice of Christ. There may be some civil use for some of the civil laws. We have to be very careful about drawing modern parallels to the civil laws in the Old Testament. And we need to make sure that we're following, sort of tracing the path of the New Testament. Now, I don't want to go into all that. It would take me a lifetime to preach through the law and teach you about the law. That's not the purpose of this sermon. Right, But um, what we see in the New Testament is the thing that is abiding, the thing that is persistent is this law of love, to love God and love your neighbor. That's the essence of the covenant, of the Mosaic covenant. right? And that's the essence of how God wants us to relate to him and live in his world. Now here's the thing about the law. The law of God can guide us in our relationship with God, in our relationship with others. But it is not there to save us. And if you look to the law to save you, it will become a weight that you cannot bear. Uh, Dr. Currid is a uh, professor of Reformed Theological Seminary who wrote a commentary on the book of Leviticus. 
Okay, So every day he would go into his office and he would sit down and he would look at those laws about everything the priests are supposed to do and he would take his notes and write his commentary on it. And one time he was talking about this and he said that he dreaded going to the office every day because all those laws just felt like a weight pressing upon him. And then one day he realized that's the point of it. The point of that law is so that we would feel the weight of the law. We would feel God's holiness and his transcendence, and that would drive us to Jesus. So law is not there to save us. The law is there to drive us to Jesus so we come to him for salvation. And so we experience all the benefits of being God's children. And that's the second thing I want you to see this morning. I want you to see the benefits of the covenant with Moses. God gives us three benefits here. In verse 5, he says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. All the earth is mine. So the law teaches us how to be God's treasured possession. Remember, we're already in this relationship. He's already saved Israel. He's already rescued them. And now he's saying, if you keep my laws, you're going to experience being my treasured possession. So what does it mean to be a treasured possession? Well, in, the, in this culture in the ancient Near East, a king owned all everything in his area, everything in his land, right, was all his. But if he had something that was special, something that was dear to him, something he wanted to keep for himself, he would set it aside, and that would be his special treasure. That would be his treasured possession. Right? And so what God is saying is, Um, He's saying, Israel, as you obey these commands, as you trust and obey me, you're going to experience all the blessings of being my treasured possession, of being the thing that I hold most dear to my heart. What's the thing that you hold most dear to your heart? What's your treasured possession? What's what's in the lockbox that if your house burnt down, you would would go and grab it, or you would take it with you because you wouldn't want to lose it? God feels that way about his people. We're his treasured possession. As we trust and obey him, we we experience that love. That's the first benefit. The second benefit is that God's law teaches us how to be a kingdom of priests. It says in verse 6, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Who were the priests? The priests were responsible for conducting worship. They brought God, they brought people into the presence of God. They carried out the sacrifices. They took care of the temple and the tabernacle, right? They were the pastors and elders and deacons of the church in the Old Testament. So it's their job to usher people into the presence of God. So what God is saying here is that as you trust and obey him through his law, you get to experience his presence. You get to come in and be with him. Not only that, you get to share his presence with everyone around you. See, Israel was always supposed to be a blessing. They were blessed to be a blessing. They were always supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. They were, also, they were always supposed to be missional, to use a, a modern term. That was their job as priests, was not only to be in God's presence, but to go out to the nations so they could experience God's love and grace. And you'll see little shadows of this in the Old Testament where, where people like Ruth who was a, a Moabite woman who lost her husband, comes into the covenant of grace and becomes a follower of Yahweh. And maybe you, 
Maybe you were here this morning because somebody was a priest to you, because somebody went out and they mediated the presence of God to you and they shared the gospel to you and they brought you into God's presence. That's what it means to be a kingdom of priests. So the law teaches us how to be his treasured possession. The law teaches us how to be a kingdom of priests. And lastly, the law teaches us how to be a holy nation. It says in verse 6, you should be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So the term nations generally referred to all the pagan nations that were around the Israelites. So there was Israel, the people of God, and the nations would be the Gentiles that were around them. Okay? They didn't possess God's divine revelation. They didn't possess these covenants. They didn't possess this law. And so by following God's law, they were going to be a holy nation. It means they were going to be set apart. They would be distinct. They would be different than all the other nations. Right? They would be the, the iPhone amongst cell phones. Or they would be the Samsung Galaxy if you're an iPhone hater, right? And you want to be the different person. I, I don't know which is which. I'll let you decide, right? But you, but you get there's something different about it. There's something separated. There's something unique and special about it. That's what God's people was supposed to be. And so this law bound them together as a special nation, and it governed them. Um, the United States Constitution, including its Bill of Rights, has 7,591 words. 7,591 words. And all of those words bind us together as a nation. And they regulate how we relate to the government and how we relate to each other and generally how we can live in this world. Well, here in Exodus 20, God gives his people 10 words or the 10 commandments. Right? And these 10 words were supposed to bind them as a nation and show them how to live in this relationship with God and how to live in relationship with each other so they could have order and so they could flourish and so they could experience all the benefits of being God's people. So these are the benefits, right? The benefits of this law is that we get to be a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation set apart. To me, this gives us a totally different view of God's law when we see these benefits, right? Because what we normally think about God's law is we normally think about it like this, that sin is a playground, that it's this wonderful world of fun and happiness and excitement. And what God's done with his law is he's built a fence around that playground and all the Christians are standing outside and we want to get in and God's saying, you can't get in there and have all that fun. Really, it's the exact opposite. God has brought us into his family. He's brought us into this playground where we get to experience all the joy and benefits of being his. And he's put this fence around it with his law. And he's saying, this is how you stay in here. This is how I experience all my love. This is how you can treasure me and I can treasure you. Kids, uh, this is why your parents make rules around the house. They make laws, right? They're, they're like the kings and queens of their own little fiefdom. Right? But they make these laws not because they don't love you, but because they love you. They want you to be safe. They want you to grow and flourish. They want you to be happy. And so the laws come as love so you can experience this relationship with them. And when you reject the law that your parents lay down, guess what you're doing? You're rejecting them. And when we reject God's law, we're not just rejecting some arbitrary list of rules that God just thought, okay, I'll put up this and this and this and don't covet and don't do, you know. What we're really rejecting is God himself. 
Because his law is an expression of his character. It's an expression of his love and kindness to us. Uh, I heard about a television show called World's Strictest Parents. Anybody ever, ever watch that? No, World's Strictest Parents? Well, so what they do is they, they have these kids who have been in their parents' homes, and the, the parents are really, uh, the kids are really rebellious, and they reject their parents, and they reject all their parents' rules, and they break all the laws. And so they take these kids, and they literally take them to somebody else's home, and they give them all these super strict rules. They're really hard on them. They're the world's strictest parents. They make them follow all these rules and work really hard. It's really grueling. And the, the idea is it's supposed to break them down so that they really learn to love and appreciate their parents. And so on this show, of course, you've got, you know, it's the same theme repeated over and over again, but you've got this kid, he's rejected his parents, he's rebelled, they send him to the world's strictest parents, he's working hard, he's grumbling, he's complaining he's about his parents, and then he gets a note from his mother. He gets a letter sent to him. And this is what the letter says. His mother says, It's hard to raise you. I work all day, and I don't think you notice because you only think about yourself. You never offer to help or say thank you. And as the kid was reading these words, he, he started to choke up and he started to cry. And he realized that when he was breaking those rules, he wasn't just rebelling against some rules. He was rebelling against a person. He was rebelling against a mother who loved him and cared for him. When we break God's rules, we're not just rebelling against rules. We're rebelling against a person. We're rebelling against our creator who created us. and We're rebelling against our heavenly father who loves us. He wants us to experience those benefits of being in a relationship with him. But Israel rejected him. If you, if you walk through the Old Testament, if you keep reading after this, you go through all those history books, what you see is it's really just a multi-generational lesson on sin. Because <laughs> Israel is continually unfaithful. God is faithful. Israel is unfaithful. God is faithful. Israel is unfaithful. And they sort of cycle through this uh, faithfulness and unfaithfulness cycle all the way through the Old Testament. And you see, they never kept the law. They never could keep the law. It was impossible. Even if they were doing some of the external stuff, they weren't doing all the external stuff, and they weren't doing any of it for the right reason. And so uh, what God did is he had to make them a new promise. And and he says, he he begins to make this new covenant, and we'll study the new covenant here in a couple weeks, but I just want to give you a little foretaste of it. Right? In Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27, he says this. This is while they're in exile. So they were, they were disciplined. They rejected God, and so they were disciplined by going, being sent into exile in Babylon. And while they're in exile in Babylon, this is what God says to them. Even though they've been unfaithful, he says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and... Cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So what is God saying? He's saying, I'm going to do something radically different with you. I'm going to do something, I'm going to fundamentally transform your heart. You don't need, so Moses got this law written in the finger of God on these stone tablets. And God is saying, you don't need the law of God written on stone tablets. You need a new heart. You need my law written on your heart. 
So Israel eventually returned from exile, but their nation and their religion were never the same. And so they had to wait. They had to wait for God to provide a rescuer. They waited. There was approximately 400 years of silence and suffering in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, where they waited and waited and waited. And after 400 years, God finally sent his treasured possession, his one and only son, to come and fulfill the law for them and for us. So Jesus was born. He was both human. He was both divine, right? One person, two natures. And what happened whenever whenever Jesus was born? Where do you have to go? He had to go to Egypt. And then out of Egypt, God called his son, Jesus. And what did Jesus do whenever he came out of Egypt? He perfectly kept God's law his entire life. Jesus was a true and greater Israel. He was everything that Israel was supposed to be. He finished this story that God was, began with Israel, right? He perfectly and personally obeyed God's law every single day. He kept it inside and outside. Yet, on the cross, God's greatest treasure, his royal priest, his holy nation, suffered and died. Why? Because Israel couldn't keep the law, and neither could we. There's not a person in here that's personally and perfectly obeyed God's law from beginning to end. There's not a person in here that's loved God with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind, and loved his neighbor as himself. But on the cross, Jesus died to pay for those sins. He died to pay for the sins of rebelling against our Heavenly Father and rebelling against our God. He took the punishment for our law-breaking. He died, he rose from the grave, and he ascended into heaven. And now the book of Hebrews tells us that he mediates a better covenant because this covenant is, is, a law, is not a law of stone, but it's a law of spirit. And, God is, and all who come to Jesus in faith and put their trust in him receive this heart of flesh. He fills them with their spirit. And by grace through faith in Jesus, we become God's treasured possession. We become his royal priesthood. We become his holy nation. Listen to 1 Peter 2, 4 through 9. It says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, a chosen and precious. And whoever be- a, a, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Don't you see the good news of the gospel here? 
by grace through faith in Jesus, we become God's treasured possession. We become his royal priesthood. We become a holy nation. So we experience his goodness and grace, and we extend it to others. And that law that is a burden that weighs us down is no longer something that suffocates and kills us because Jesus lifts us up, because he rescues us and saves us. That law becomes a delight. Think about it this way. Uh, Brian Chapel was a, a seminary professor at uh, Covenant Theological Sem- uh, Seminary in St. Louis for a number of years, and he tells a story about a riverbank in St. Louis and uh, there were barges that were constantly going up and down this river. There was, barges are large boats. They would constantly go up and down. And what they would do is they would wash away. There's a huge embankment on the side of the river. They would wash away the sand, right, on the side of the river. And it would make these big, like, potholes. It would make, basically make big, um, not potholes, but just, like, holes underneath the sand that you couldn't see. So one day, uh, there was brothers. They went, out, they went out to play in these sand dunes. They were told not to play in these sand dunes because it was dangerous for them. Right? They went out to play in the sand dunes. They were playing around, and one of those potholes uh, fell. Right? The, the boys never came back. Uh, a search party went out to look for them, and after a few hours of searching, they found the youngest boy in the sand, and he was buried up to his neck. Right? And so they, they asked the boy, they said, Hey, where is your brother? And they said, my brother is underneath me. When the sand began to fall in, the older brother had gotten underneath the younger brother to support him so that he could save him so that the sand would no longer crush him. When it comes to the law of God, Jesus is our older brother that is under us, that has come underneath us to rescue us, to save us so that the law no longer crushes us. And it transforms the way we look at the law It goes from something of duty into something of delight. It turns into a a way that we want to live for our elder brother Jesus. We want to live to love him and serve him and honor him. And we want more and more people to come into his kingdom. Jesus tells us that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. His yoke is easy and his burden is light only if he has already paid the penalty for your sins. Only if he's already lifted the law for you. In that passage, uh, the, the yoke being easy and it being light, uh, the way Jesus describes it there, the, the words that he used describes this, a, a yoke is like a weight on your back that they would put over an ox. Or, and it, it was sort of a metaphor for the teaching of a rabbi. But when Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, what he's saying is that that law, that his teaching actually elevates us. It actually saves us. It actually rescues us. It's like a, it's like a flotation device in water. Right? It's something that holds us up. It buoys us. That's what God's law is for believers. His spirit is in you because he loves you. All who put their faith in Christ have his spirit. His law is, and, and that transforms his law into love. If you haven't put your faith in Christ and the law is crushing you, today's the day. If you're religious, if you've been a Christian your whole life, but every time you see the law, you just feel this weight on top of you, maybe it's kind of because you're trying to save yourself through the law. God, what God wants to do today is to deliver you, to show you that Jesus has fulfilled the law for you so that that yoke can be easy and that burden can be light for you and you can experience all the benefits 
of being in relationship with your Father. Let's pray that that would happen.